And we're back. Hello there. Welcome back to the Coruscant Nights podcast. We're excited to have you here as we break down the third episode of the third season of The Mandalorian. My name is Cooper and I am joined today by Jack. Hello. And Mark, who is joining us online. G'day. Uh, Mark is unable to join us in person today due to unforeseen circumstances. But that is okay. We have ways around it. And he is here to share his thoughts about the recent Mandalorian episode. Just a reminder, we do have social media on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, all under Coruscant Nights. And, of course, our Patreon is still kicking. Uh, if you want to go check it out for more content, or if you want to just go support us, that'd be greatly appreciated. That's also under Coruscant Nights. You can find us there, or by the link in our Instagram bio. And a big shout-out to Ben and Nikita for helping us support yes, this channel. very grateful for them as we continue to grow. All right, so this week we're going to go do things a little bit differently. Um, because the episode is more of a slow-paced, slow-burner type episode, we didn't really feel it was appropriate to break it down chronologically and scene by scene. Rather, we're just going to briefly summarize it and kind of go into what we liked and what we didn't like, what we noticed, and what we're hoping for for the rest of the season. <clears throat> so, this was chapter 19 of The Mandalorian's Journey. It was titled The Convert, and I want to get into that a bit later. Mm. It was directed by first-time director in the Mandalorian universe, Lee Isaac Chung, and it had a runtime of almost one hour. It was 58 minutes long, and that is including credits. All right, so let's uh, let's hand it over to Mark. Mark, what did you think overall of the episode? I thought generally it was pretty good, pretty enjoyable, but clearly the best... 10 minutes for the first five and the final five where we actually saw the Mandalorian. Uh, you know, the story with Dr. Pershing and Elia Kane, it was, it was good, but, you know, it probably builds up for further in the season, like in terms of story and lore, which I guess will be useful by then. But at the moment, I didn't really think that it was a Mandalorian episode. It was more of like its own sort of thing, which was still interesting. Okay. Jack? Uh, yeah, similar boat to Mark, but I think I'm more on the, on the nose with, uh, I think it was a good Star Wars episode. I just think it wasn't a good Mandalorian episode. So I think I would have preferred it if it wasn't a part of the eight episodes of the Mandalorian due to its long runtime with only having 10 minutes, basically of the Mandalorian. But however, I did enjoy the aspects of the kind of, it was another bit of spy and mystery and kind of shows the, how the New Republic aren't so good as we maybe thought originally. So I did enjoy that bit of it. I read a comment. Uh, I just wanted to quickly add in, sorry, Cooper, that I agree with Jack there about it was a good Star Wars episode, but not necessarily a good Mandalorian episode. Mm. I read a comment, and I'm not sure if it was actually one of you who said it, but you said that this episode would work better if it was in its own series. I think that was Mark, yeah. Yeah, Mark, you said that. I completely agree with that, 100%. Um, If... It was like with the Book of Boba Fett. You've got an episode... You've got two episodes dedicated to the Mandalorian in that series, kind of leaving out the main character. Um, similar thing happens in this episode. We're focusing on these two characters who have been side characters for so long in this series and kind of moving aside Mando on Bo-Katan and that kind of... It, it shifts the balance a little bit and it was a little frustrating to watch this episode and not see the constant switching back because it just always stayed on this Coruscant uh, pair here. But overall, I, I it's hard to judge this episode. I feel like this episode will do a lot better if the follow-up episode or the following episode 
to this episode is really good and kind of links back to this episode in a lot of different ways. But as a standalone episode, I've said episode a lot, by the way, um, as a standalone episode, I'm not a massive fan of it. There were some great things in it, but overall, can't really say I was too much of a fan. Yeah, I just think it could have easily been the storyline and plot with uh, Dr. Pershing and Elia Kang. Um could have been done in a much shorter time than it actually yeah. gave us. Yeah, yeah. I think there was too much explored of uh, non-important things. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree with what you guys have just said. All right. Okay. So let's uh, get into it again. We're going to go over it very briefly, and then we'll kind of discuss it. So the first ten minutes of the episode are with Mando and Bo-Katan, literally picking up where we left off. They're on Mandalore. And they've woken from the, the living waters. And then it's a quick trip back to Kalevala, but they're tracked by TIE Interceptors. And how cool was it to see TIE Fighters and TIE Interceptors back in Star Wars? Yeah, I really like seeing them back again. I just did kind of think it was so, like, spontaneous. They just appeared out of, like, thin air. Even, um, I think yeah. Mando or Bo actually mentioned, like, where the hell did they came from kind of thing. And they were saying an Imperial Warlord, but that's <laughs> not really... We don't really know who that alludes to at all. Yeah, and also... um. We just did skip over a little bit of when they came, when it cut instantly from the. As Bo and Din are both from out of the living waters, it was interesting how kind of Bo was asking all these questions about, like, what did you see down there? You know, did you get grabbed by something or, you know, all this kind of stuff to make sure that he didn't see the mythosaur, which keeps that information only to Bo and that she can maybe utilize on her own in the future, which is another reason why I don't like Bo. <laughs> Back to the TIE Fighters though I mean it was very cool but there were so many of them and like you said where did they come from I'm pretty sure I know TIE Fighters are and I assume TIE Interceptors are the same where they're uh, short they're like short distance um, starships so they can't really travel very far to my knowledge so Mm. that kind of implies me that there might be an Imperial Warlord hidden around in the system somewhere well, I think we could be getting the answer, if not in this series, but probably in Skeleton Crew, which I've heard is going to be exploring um, that sort of Star Wars, side of Star Wars. So mm. that could be interesting to um, to find out what happens. So I want to keep exploring this Tie Fighter scene because the there's one scene as they're kind of fighting. Mando actually drops out of the out of Bo-Katan's ship. And there's this epic free-falling scene where he's falling and the TIE Fighters are zooming past him. And I just thought, that is so, so cool. Do you guys share that same opinion? Yeah, I almost thought, like, the TIE Fighter or the TIE Intercept was actually going to ram into him. <laughs> he was just going to go flying, but yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool as well. I actually thought it was a nice callback to the last episode of Season 1 where mm. Mando and uh, Moff Gideon are fighting on that TIE Fighter. I thought it was a mm. nice callback. Mm. Mando actually does the same move in his N1, which he oh, did right, with, the, with the Razor Crest in uh, Season 2, I'm pretty yeah. sure. But if I might be mistaken, it could be Season 1. But he does the same move, and it just looks so cool. And then the ship, he, he does stalls it in, the ship? Stalls and yeah. goes, points downwards. Yeah, and that was really cool. Yeah. I like that. It's really cool. So, when all seems good, uh, that there's more TIE Interceptors. Oh, no, sorry, it's TIE Bombers. Yeah, who future It's revealed right. that they are bombing... The Bo-Katan's castle, mm. which I thought was a very, very subtle, but also scarring 
like callback callback and reminder to Bo of the Night of a Thousand Tears it was almost framed in that way as well with the over <clears throat> overhead shots mm. from the Thai bombers I thought that was an interesting interesting um, way to shoot it mm. I, I was about to say actually a similar thing with like the camera and was it really remind you of that flashback we see with the when Mandalore gets bombed mm. but yeah like you said it really would have induced some sort of PTSD I'd assume in those Catan yeah for sure I actually made a comment on my initial watch saying that the ship movements were really good. I thought it was very fluent. It was very wasn't um, too shaky or unrealistic. It felt like the movements. It almost felt like animated ship movements in live action, which was really cool because you can do a lot with animated mm. um, kind of tracking and stuff. But to put that into live action, especially that one scene with Bo-Katan where she flips the wing, mm. I thought that was really cool. I think I think the one positive i have for all star wars shows and uh movies is actually how how well the ship fights and dog fights are in all live action i think that's the one thing that they actually get right every single time no matter mm. how good the quality of the show is we leave the scene with the interceptors there's actually a lot of interceptors coming at them and the two decide to to fly away to a place that quote um they'll never be able to find them mm. which i thought was interesting and we obviously find out where that is at the end of the episode but now we get into the bit where we don't really need to talk about it too much because not a lot happened. And I'm pretty sure amongst the consensus it wasn't a very entertaining section of the of the episode. There were definitely some little bits that I, I, I wrote down that were good to see. But overall it was a very lackluster and kind of poorly scripted and designed scene. As, mm. as great as it was seeing Coruscant, mm. it's just... Not the right characters and not the right story to tell in that environment. Coruscant Knights. Yeah. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't necessarily exciting, as you said, but, <clears throat> and I agree, it still wasn't, you know, super enjoyable. But I will admit that there was a good amount of lore and world building for the future in oh, regard definitely. to the New Republic. Yeah, mm, definitely. I, I agree with your point there, Mark. I think that it definitely gives us an insight to the New Republic but also into the world building of Coruscant and the mindset because Coruscant's always been one of the most influential uh, worlds in the, in, the, in the Star Wars universe given that it's a core world and it's home to trillions of people and the fact that, you know, we see in Andor that not only is the... and this is set um, right after Revenge of the Sith not only is the mindset amongst the, the general public pretty poor and grey and dark but you can see it with the authorities as well that it's it's a very demoralizing environment. Whereas now, all of, we see a scene where Doctor Pershing is chatting to some I don't know if they're high ranking citizens or leaders or something, but um, they're all treating him well, saying they're hoping he enjoys the city and that they're offering them, him the best. And I think it's just crazy that new leaderships can bring in different dynamics and. Um, really changed the mindset of the citizens and how the overall city feels. Coruscant felt really, really bright and alive. And we see scenes of that later. Whereas in Andor, it always always feels very dead and cold and still. And I don't know if you guys share that opinion, but that's certainly something I picked up on. Yeah, I agree with you. That makes sense. But as you were saying that, I was actually thinking something that, well, especially on Coruscant, right in the heart of the galaxy, and being the capital of the empire, to my knowledge, most of the citizens on Coruscant were really happy with the empire, weren't they? They were. 
Yeah, so what I'm getting at is I was just thinking about how the empire essentially came to an end through some, like, pretty small rebellion that were out in the fringes of the galaxy. And if... Because they took over, like, through military matters. And what I'm wondering is, like, would the citizens of Coruscant... Because they seem to get go quite along with the New Republic, but wouldn't they have been kind of like, oh, you know, this fringe group is taking over the government and we haven't had a say in it and we like the Empire? Well, also remember, Mark, that most of what we see of Coruscant is not the underworld, it's the, the kind Richies. of high-rise population who's all rich and they're obviously... Above the politics. Yeah, so they're just going to go with the flow of whatever because yeah, they want to be up-to-date yeah, and politically I, I correct. I do again well. agree with that. But on the other hand, you said, what did you say, the, the underworld? Was that the word you used? Mm-hmm. Well, they weren't, they're not necessarily into like the political thing either. It's more of like the, it's like in between, in between the underworld and then in between the elites. You've got all the general people, you know. They, we saw quite a few of them in, the, in this episode. It's an interesting true, thought. Yeah. It's an interesting thought. I mean, my opinion about this whole New Republic on Coruscant and how they're they're doing stuff is me and a few other people I know for a fact thought that it had a big correlation with George Orwell's 1984 Mm. and the quote on how he said we trade one villain for another how kind of like wow we just got rid of the empire but then is a new republic even really that good moving on from the general Coruscant opinion we move on in the story through Dr. Penn Pershing which is an awesome name and he's a part of the amnesty program he's kind of given a speech about organ cloning and how uh, his, his work was manipulated by the Empire to become something that it shouldn't have been and that really it was just a way to help really his mother who was uh, died who died from... from not being able to have an organ replacement. So mm. I think that's a really interesting idea. I think it's going to probably tie into future films, <clears throat> but we'll wait to see what happens with that. There's a scene that I really want to talk about and I want you guys to contribute as well. He's meeting with the some of the Amnesty program members, and amongst them is the former Moff Gideon. Uh, what would you call? What would you call her? Right hand woman. Yeah, right hand woman. All right, <laughs> yeah. we'll go with that. Uh, her name is Aliyah Kane, as we learn later. I think it was an interesting character to reintroduce, given she didn't really get too much screen time in the previous seasons. But I mean, it was it was an all right uh, introduction, I guess. Um, yeah, anyway, well, I, it, I didn't even know. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. I didn't even know who she was. Like. <laughs> when they at the start of the episode they did the recap and yeah. I saw her and I was like okay so she's probably going to be in this episode but I don't even know who she is yeah I, I think my general opinion like uh, Cooper next to me says he didn't really expect the twist at the end which obviously we're going to talk about but I just I really did when I first saw her on that table this the suspicious smile and just everything she was saying and doing I just had a feeling she was still working for Moff and we already knew Moff was probably going to end up appearing again, not being actually captured in prison or anything. So I, I really just thought that this whole plot twist actually wasn't that plot yeah. twisty. Yeah. I agree with you, Jack. Yeah. I, when I first saw her, I was like, okay, well, she, I have a funny feeling that she's not been, you know, like... Legit. Well, yeah, she's mm. still an Imperial. I had this funny feeling. Yeah. As the episode progressed, I started to think, oh, maybe they actually did get to her <coughs> in this program. But then, obviously, we find out they didn't. Hey, Mark. Yes. Would you say that you had a bad feeling about that? <laughs> yes, I would. Okay. Good, good, it's, good. it's just, I think, the persistence of her trying to get Dr. Pershing to go get that mobile lab really 
sold that she was still for the Imperials because it's just why would you persist that hard? I know like if you were on the the good side, quote unquote, you you probably would ask once if you want to persist it afterwards, but she knew it was the wrong thing. So I just knew there was gonna be some rat going on, some some stuff like that. I think it's important obviously it's important to look at what's happening in the same, but also the dialogue of what's said. I thought the dialogue, first of all, for the whole episode was a little off. Mm. But I think in this scene particularly it was quite interesting actually. Because all of them are ex-imperial officers, soldiers, etc. And the things that they're talking about are really kind of clever. And I think they would be reflective of of what, you know, maybe even troopers in the real world would talk about. They talk about what they miss the most. They talked about kind of like... Their experiences. Yeah, yeah. and like how now after being rehabilitated how like crazy it kind of was to think that they were doing the right thing at the time right you know yeah so i thought that was quite interesting to kind of get that discussion around it and then they even talk about oh no i've already said that so i think that the whole idea of the amnesty program is it's interesting but it's also pretty cruel and i think we all kind of agree on that comment there because while it's great to have this rehabilitation program it first of all it's not really rehab because Mm. These people might have just been following the Empire in fear of being killed, not out of loyalty. So the fact that they're being considered patients for rehab is kind of it's it's a gross demeaning. Re- yeah. It was so much of it was so much of a prison feeling, the whole aesthetic and the whole boundaries and the whole naming uniforms. of the uniforms and even the naming of just the codes like the chain codes yeah, back was, in the Imperial I was Times. Mention the, um the names as well because hmm. the you know, the New Republic is supposed to be different to the empire and yet these officers who definitely would have had names as we know like Eli Kane I think she was actually Lieutenant Kane but mm. they just give all these well what do you call them program members they give them like code names which kind of to me defeat what the New Republic's meant to represent. Yeah it definitely does defeat what the New Republic's trying to represent. Now we'll move on there is one scene that I do want to talk about, but for the rest of the episode, we don't really need to speak about what happens on Coruscant. They go to the Imperial shipyard, they find the thing, um, the lab, and then surprise, surprise, Elia Kane turns in Pershing and is probably gonna be revealed to still be working with Gideon after Pershing is brainwashed. But I want to bring it back all the way after this scene that we've just spoken about. They're outside celebrating Bendu Day. And there's a couple of cool little subtle details in there that I think were really cleverly worked in. Um, first of all, I think... I don't know if, Mark, you caught on to this. Jack and I definitely spoke about it. The Resistance theme was actually playing in the background of one of the conversations that I like the Alaya parade. and Penn were having. I like that circus carnival. Yeah, I didn't notice. It was at the... Is that that rock mountain top of the original place of Coruscant, yeah. which I thought was actually really... It, it felt kind of forced, but I also kind of liked thinking that wow, that's how, like, high the city of Coruscant is now, that, like, it's so much further below the actual Coruscant Mm. planet, which I felt was interesting. We also get a name drop for what type of planet uh, Coruscant is, and it's called an Ecumenopolis. Ecumenopolis. (laughs) Something like that, They basically describe it as a city planet, because the whole planet is, Is is, is a city, and it's... Uh, metropolitan which is home to trillions of civilians yeah yeah 
Um, there's fireworks. What mm. else did you guys pick up? Did those you pick up weird, those weird ice creams that look so <laughs> fake because nothing changed every time they ate it and didn't yeah. even chew. I was, I was like, that's just a nitpick thing. But like stuff like that just takes you kind of out of the moment, in my opinion, when they're so focused on those two characters alone. I don't know if I'm remembering this wrong, but weren't those ice creams quite bright or looked like? They <laughs> yeah, they up? were. Yeah, they were. They're like neon. Yeah. Yeah, that was that's kind of odd. Yeah, I think ice cream would be almost a universal thing, even in Star Wars. To be honest, I didn't think it would change too much, but okay. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to make a comment quickly because it just came into my head. I think there is one scene that pretty much reflects the failures of the New Republic in one like two second clip. That. Uh, robot that comes around and picks up the trash and says no littering. no littering. It's amazing that the New Republic can like program droids to do that, but can't obviously see the big threat that's coming from the uh, outer rim. Well, now, now that you mentioned about that droid, there's also those ticket inspectors on the trains, which are also robot and droids, which was also the similar ones you saw on the New Republic uh, prison ship when Mando was helping with, oh, yeah, the, with that crew. Right. So it's like they almost know. are so lazy that they literally just hand all the tedious jobs to actual droids, which probably shows their lack of consideration or any form of thought that someone is growing, like an Imperial threat is growing again below them, you know? And, I mean, there's a lot going on for the New Republic at the moment. They're obviously... Uh, I don't know if they're... Oh, yeah, they are relocating to um, Chandrila, which is just across from Coruscant, and that's kind of another big uh, populated world. That's where the Resistance is going to... Oh, the New Republic's going to obviously settle down. And... Obviously, they've just come off a war, uh, the Battle of Jakku. They're not really focused on that. They're focused on the win that they've gotten over the Empire, and they just want to put that all behind them. And you can see that mood is reflected throughout the episode. I also just want to quickly mention on how cool it was seeing the, an Imperial Star Destroyer kind of in the docks of, like, the outer rim of the yeah. Coruscant planet and seeing how large it is in scale to an actual person on the outside because every time you see them, they're usually just hovering in space, you know. Reminded me of the Battlefront 2 campaign. <laughs> that is true. With which the is shipyards the, on Fondor. Which is canon. So, yeah. <laughs> which is... Well, the funny thing is, I was actually going to say it reminded me of... I was drawing parallels with on um, in Jedi... Yeah, full Jedi on order. Jedi. Actually true in the junkyard. point, the, Mark. In the junkyard, the yeah. ships, wasn't it? When, yep. um On Braca. The Republic ships, which is quite a funny parallel in that game. It's the Empire's just taking over oh. and... Yeah. We see these like Republic shipyards, but now it's the other way around. We've got the new Republic just coming into power, but, and now we've got the Imperial shipyards where they're dismantling all the old Imperial ships. But also, you actually kind of see that in itself in Andor when um, at uh, Ferrix they're also dismantling some of the old just general uh, war equipment and, and ships and stuff when they're getting invaded. You see that Andor walk through it. So it's actually a lot of these planets are still decommissioning old war tech and and ships which is a quite interesting to when you think about it it kind of never ends if you think about it it's just a new isn't, different isn't different time it's sad that the galaxy goes through this cycle over and over and over again <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't end there because uh, we all know what happens in the sequels mm, yeah the sequels mark's favorite <laughs> that scene where um elia kane turns on dr pershing and the new republic troops come in i was actually kind of confused because like we've said already, our um, guess is that she's still working for Moff Gideon and the Empire, or what remains of the Empire. But then I was kind of, at that part, I was thinking, maybe she's like, I mean, it wouldn't make sense, but maybe for some reason she's just tried to get Dr. Pershing arrested by the um, New Republic. But then obviously we find out that she's kind of like a 
is it a double agent or a triple agent? She's I don't pretend even... she's working for the New Republic, but yeah, I think it's double agent. But yeah, double agent. Yeah, definitely still an Imperial, as we find out towards the end. And I'm assuming the reason she wants to either kill him or erase his memory, because I assume that's one of the two things that's going to happen to him, is to halt him from speaking out either on his scientific research or what has happened with Moff Gideon. On your point quickly, Mark, I just want to make a comment, and it's just really quickly. Um, I thought that um, Dr. Pershing's job for the New Republic was very reflective of Cyril Khan's job in Andor. Oh, yeah. When I saw those like little office sort of desk things, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. I was like, oh, gee, this, this really reminds me of Andor when Cyril Khan is basically demoted into the offices. Yeah. And they're pretty much the same the same thing. And that's back to Jack's point about George Orwell. What was the quote? We trade one villain for another. Pretty much the, the New Republic and the Empire are acting the same way, just having different morals. Anyway, now we'll move on to the last five minutes of the episode, which were probably the m- most important for character development um, that we've seen in a while. So... We cut back to Mando and Bo-Katan who are on their ship, oh, in their ship, sorry, excuse me, and they fly to the, the Mandalorian hideout. I can't remember, I don't think the planet's been named yet, but it's the, like the little desert sand water hole area. And yeah, there's a cave there yeah. that they all hide in. Yep. Paz Vizor is not happy at all that they're there, but they both provide, or Mando provides proof that he's bathed in the living waters. And then the armorer makes a good point that Bo-Katan has also done that and that she hasn't removed her helmet. So they are both welcomed back into the Creed. And that is where we leave the episode. It's also interesting how you can easily, even with the Mandalorian helmets on, you could easily tell that Bo was like looking so like shocked and confused and how that she's actually mm. legally allowed to be accepted into this kind of Creed, which is quite funny. I don't funny. know if she wanted to do that. I think nah. that's... Can, we just, can yeah. we just mention that's good acting on... on um... What's her name? Katie. Katie Sackhoff. Katie, Katie Sackhoff's behalf. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. And also, I just wanted to quickly mention how you said they, they provided evidence that they actually went there with that little flask of the water. Mm. Well, that, that that's answered my question from last week when I said, how the heck is he going to prove to them? I mean, mm. I wasn't expecting there to be some form of chemical reaction to happen. <laughs> it was just normal water. And I thought the significance was where the water was located in the mines, but there must be something in it if it had that reaction into that little type of other liquid that the armor poured it into. Yeah, I agree completely. I just wonder where the season's going to go now because we've kind of concluded a lot of plot points that the trailer was alluding to. We still haven't seen that um, New Republic Marshal. I can't remember his name. We saw him a bit in season two. Mm. We haven't seen that scene about him saying that there's a threat and you need to be aware of that. And the Jedi. The Jedi scene. We haven't seen and that And one of the oh, ones. And, and, yeah, the Mandalorian. War. Uh, well, war. Or Mandalorian conflict where they all dropped in. It actually looked like Navarro, honestly, when they dropped down onto it. Yeah, it, it actually it. did. So who knows what that's going to be about. But I think... It leaves this season more open-ended for, like, no one's really going to know where it goes. Like, sort of like the other seasons where the basic plot is kind of almost done in, like, the first three or four episodes. I just think as a season where we haven't had a Mandalorian season for two years, these first three episodes have kind of been like, well, why have we waited two years for it almost at this point? You know, like, it could have seemed like it could have easily been done in one year, but who knows? I might be... I hope that I'm proven wrong in the later half of this season. I tend to... Yeah, what are your guys' predictions? Do you think there'll be more of 
a Liar Kane or that sort of New Republic storytelling in, in The Mandalorian, or do you think Episode 3 was the only one? I don't, I don't really see why they would have a whole episode dedicated to them just to, like, essentially ditch them for the rest of the season. I feel like they'll probably come back, but in smaller bits. Yeah, I think it's going to probably link more to Moff Gideon and try and explain, like, instead of just showing him escaping, which they could have done, but I think they're trying to give a bit more, like, he's thought about his escape and he's had, he still has people that follow his orders even when he's in prison kind of thing. It also keeps the audience interested in what actually happened to, to Moff Gideon mm. because there's little comments that say, like, they're Rumors. not sure if he escaped or if he was... was Hooked up to a mind flare. Yeah, so mm. it's it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I'm, like, 100% sure we're going to see him this season. Mm. I just don't know what his impact on the overall series is going to be. Yeah, maybe even reporting back to Thrawn. That could be an absolute huge development for the show as a whole. Mm. All right, so, do Mark, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I think we've covered pretty much all yeah, of it. Yeah, we did a good job. Mm. So, I think that's about it. We've covered everything we wanted to in pretty good time. Hope you've enjoyed listening to it. We'll uh, be uploading weekly to cover the rest of the season of The Mandalorian. Reminder again that we do have Patreon. Go sub, go give us a follow. Speaking of, our Patreons will be getting a new and exclusive episode of the podcast on patreon next week so go follow it's good stuff there we had a we had a podcast recently about uh spinning a wheel of star wars topics that was really fun to do we want to do more of that um no spoilers for this week we want that to be a surprise but yeah thanks for tuning in uh from the coruscant knights team um thanks for listening goodbye next week see you next week Bye bye